Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, everybody. It's Jason here. Before we begin the show, I'd like to thank everybody for continuing to listen. We're always looking for ways to improve the podcast and find other listeners like you. And you can help us by filling out a brief survey at wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54 survey. That's wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54 survey. Thanks again for your support. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, right after uh, Robbie and I talk about News of the Week, you will hear a conversation that we had as part of Texas Tribune Fest with uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman of impeachment Ukraine scandal fame, but is also just a terrific guest with a lot of interesting thoughts. So hang on for that. Ravi, tell us about the news. Well, Jason, let's start with Facebook, which is having a terrible week. We're only halfway through the week, and who knows where it goes from here. Among the many problems that they've had this week and obstacles, there's been a whistleblower, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, who released a trove of documents to the Wall Street Journal. That whistleblower made herself public in a hearing of the Senate subcommittee of the Commerce Committee and really unloaded on her former company. And what she had to say, I wouldn't say was totally surprising, but added texture and evidence to what a lot of us have been talking about. And to put it succinctly, she said, uh, Facebook harms children, it stokes division, and it weakens our democracy. And she didn't just make these claims uh, and pull them out of thin air. She uh, referenced documents and her own experience to say that Facebook had evidence that teenagers who use Instagram, that their mental health is significantly harmed by the use of Instagram and that Facebook knew that. And she also 
had a lot of evidence to talk about how Facebook's algorithms actually stoke misinformation, hatred, and in some cases, violence. And so this was a big deal, Jason. Uh, there seems to be, and definitely in these hearings, you know, this is one of the rare moments where we see people of both sides of the aisle talking about doing something together. There seems to be a bipartisan consensus to regulate Facebook on a host of measures. Why hasn't there been anything done yet? This is this is not totally new. Um, and do we have any hope that something will happen in the future? I mean, we've talked a lot about how the two parties in Congress seem to have differing motivations for why they want to come after Facebook. Um, but the short version of it is, is that you've got one side that is concerned about our side, the left, that is concerned about the consolidation of not just power, but economic power. And in general, doesn't think that companies should get that big and swallow up other companies. And then you got the other side that is like worried that Facebook is going to silence some of the, you know, more conservative or, or frankly, hateful views, you know, and, and then they want to bully them. So I, I feel like at this point, it's, it's those things, but I feel like it's also a combination of two other things. One is I think that there's generally fear. I mean, frankly, it's, it's a very powerful platform um, that can, as we, as we know, uh, and as the whistleblower pointed out, can alter public perception. And, you know, there's that old expression, uh, what is it, never pick a fight with someone who buys ink by the barrel. I mean, we're, and that was just like, don't pick a fight with a newspaper. And this is so many levels beyond that. And then I think there's probably on the right, an element of how do we regulate this without creating a precedent to regulate other massive businesses that support us and that we think are fine. And they probably don't know how to square that circle yet. Yeah. You know, there was a telling comment uh, that this whistleblower made, which was essentially, you know, a reiteration of Zuckerberg's earlier comments that he's been he's been reported to have said early in, in Facebook's life that uh, they're for company over country. And I think this whistleblower said that something to the extent of if, you know, Facebook, you know, any time that they're given the choice between doing something that's in the best interest of the country and then and doing something in their own self-interest or narrow self-interest, they always cho choose the latter. This gets to this point about these companies. Sometimes we call them American companies, but they're really not. You know, Facebook is is almost this supranational organization. You know, when when it has hundreds of millions of users of WhatsApp, for example, in India, and billions of users around the country, it's almost like we need a treaty to think about this company. It it is so vast, so powerful, and seems immune to any of the consequences that you'd think a company should face. When you think, Jason, about the laundry list of stuff that we've put at the door of Facebook, and everybody, we by like society and the Senate and everybody, we're, we talk about its monopoly problems. We talk about its misuse of data, which it's apologized numerous times for data breaches and then selling our data, et cetera. We talk about its harm on teens now, talk about its, its regulation of speech. And some people think it regulates too much. Some people think it regulates too little. You can keep going. Is, are we running into a problem where we're we're putting so many problems of Facebook together that it's almost in their interest that we kind of don't know where to start? I think so. I mean, that's why you want to grow so big and so powerful that people are like, I don't know how to unfold this to begin with, right? The thing about this whistleblower testimony is that it reminded me, and I'm sure a lot of people, of the tobacco testimony, right? It, of, of being like, 
not even the testimony, just the, the cases where it was like, hey, remember when they went before Congress and said this wasn't addictive? But this is the next level because this is like, what if you took what happened with tobacco and you added to it the element of R.J. Reynolds went and acquired Smith & Wesson? Then the tobacco owned the firearm companies. And then, the, you know, it's like you've got Facebook growing and becoming such a huge rooted dangerous plant underneath the the soil of of the country and of the world that you really you don't know where to start and yeah. you, you don't know where to apply um you know herbicides so it's uh i think i've taken this analogy to its conclusion but but like <laughs> but yeah it's it's got its its grips into everything um which makes it really hard to figure out where to where to go well speaking of that you know as part of their very bad week there was an outage. I think it lasted for six hours on Monday. There was an internal error that led to this huge outage and nearly 3 billion global users lost access to Facebook and tons of people who use WhatsApp. This seemed to be the more critical issue for a lot of people is that they use WhatsApp as their primary mechanism of communication. And so people weren't able to conduct business, communicate with loved ones, et cetera. It made me think that it's it's possible that Facebook is is nearing a too big to fail size right now. And I was listening to The Daily this morning where Ested Herndon, who is, who's stepping in for Michael Barbaro, was interviewing one of the reporters and said, well, what's notable to me is we interview these, these Facebook employees, including this whistleblower, and then we ask them if we should break up Facebook, and they say no. And the reason why a lot of them say no is because they think it'll be harder to to police some of these issues if there are so many different companies doing what they're doing. And I found that to be a dangerous argument because that means that we're stuck with this shitty company for the rest of our existence who just becomes more and more powerful. They're almost like the global utility at this point. And so I'm a little worried about that strain of thought. I think on the contrary, let's break it up as fast as we possibly can so that we can, you know, like ExxonMobil, deal with the smaller pieces. I think we can manage these smaller pieces, Jason. What do you think? I mean, absolutely. And look, for people who don't understand the gravity of it, um, you know, people who listen to the show a lot know that I'm still doing a lot of work on, you know, Afghan uh, evacuation. And I can tell you that I, I really can't get into the details, but when WhatsApp went down, it's a pretty dire problem when when you're trying to communicate with people in that part of the world and they need to be able to communicate with one another in order to stay safe. And, and so like, that was, that was a very big deal for me. Um, you know, I, who didn't even have WhatsApp on my phone, uh, eight weeks ago, it was just a scary six hours because uh, there are people I needed to communicate with who I couldn't, and they couldn't communicate with me. And you're going, do they, do they know that it's down? Because if they don't know it's down, then they just think they've been left. Uh, and so, it has huge consequences and you know you only have to have seen like a few superhero movies or like the early superman movies to understand that when when there are people who have only their own self-interests in mind and they're non-governmental and they have enormous power like that can go really bad <laughs> so yeah yeah the tragedy of it all is if you really comb through this testimony so much of this can be avoided by Facebook just doing the right thing more often, right? I don't. I think they would have avoided the specter of regulation. They still may, unfortunately. But uh, if they wind up getting heavily regulated 
or even perhaps overregulated to their estimation, it will be because they have breezed past every freaking stop sign on their way to just unvarnished self-interest and focus on the price of their share in the short term. Um, and there's this great book about Facebook that came out this year by two New York Times reporters that goes through just a litany of incompetence and greed and selfishness in that company. I, I can't recommend it enough. They did this really cool thing where they just listed every time Facebook has apologized for something. And it goes back to when Zuckerberg was in college. And so they do this thing where they apologize. They seem work, worked up. Although they, they, By the way, they haven't apologized for this yet, from what I could tell. But they probably will. And then they'll earnestly look broken up over this you know, teenage mental illness uh, and the misinformation that we have in this country. And then they're going to do jack shit about it. Uh, and and if they get regulated, and I and I've been a critic of overregulation of a lot of things, I'm worried about what what regulation on some of these tech companies could do to just consolidate their market share, which is another conversation. But if they get regulated, it's because of their own incompetence and greed here, and they'll deserve everything coming to them. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. And I was actually thinking about BetterHelp the other day because I was talking to a friend of mine, and his therapist retired. It's something that, you know, people can find disorienting because they're like, oh, I got to start over with somebody new. Well, look, BetterHelp is a, is a terrific solution for that. I mean, if something is, is interfering with your happiness, if you've been to therapy in the past or even if you hadn't, you know, it makes sense to reach out to BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed therapist online. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And, you know, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So for my buddy, that's really important. You're going to make it super easy to change counselors so you can find the right fit. And it's more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. Look, we want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com m54. Simply Safe is the system that U.S. News and World Report named the best home security system of 2021, and it just got even better. Simply Safe just launched their brand new wireless outdoor security camera. It's actually like that's really cool. It's engineered with all the advanced tech and the security features that you want and that you need to help keep you and your family safe. The outdoor security camera has an ultra wide 140 degree field of view so you can keep watch over your entire yard. It's got a built in spotlight with color night vision so you can keep an eye on what's going on day and night. It's super simple to set up and it usually just takes minutes and it has an easy to remove rechargeable battery so it doesn't need an outlet and it can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all, and it integrates with your Simply Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room are protected, and now your property will be too. So, to learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/majority54. What's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash majority54. Well, Jason, I'm excited to share this conversation we have with Colonel Vinman. It's a powerful conversation, and one of the reasons why we did this is because our country has become so politicized over the past few years that it's it's almost dragged people who previously seemed to be immune from politics, like our military leaders, and dragged them right into the middle 
of this cluster that is our America's polarized politics where people's patriotism is being challenged and their careers are being destroyed because uh, they choose to do the right thing. And so um, the pain in his voice and the the ideas he's expressed and the loyalty he showed to this country, I think, shine through this interview. And so I'm excited to have our listeners just hear what we had to say. Totally agree. Super glad we got to do this with Texas Tribune Fest. So enjoy. Colonel Vinman, welcome to Majority 54. Hi, Jason. Hi, Ravi. Looking forward to this conversation. We appreciate you doing it. Um, Ravi, why don't you get us started here? Well, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, or we'll call it Colonel. Uh, you, just, you just shortened it to Colonel. That's how it Colonel. works. And then, uh, which, yeah, I mean, that's how it works. I he I told him before we started recording he's 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 uncomfortable with the formality but I told him he's lucky I'm not calling him sir. Look, how about this? How about Ravi? You could call me Alex. Jason could go ahead and like stay uh, stick to his past, his roots, and call me Colonel. How about that? Compromise. I'll just be here at parade rest. <laughs> well, Alex, uh, you before we get into uh, what got you, uh, you know, some notoriety around this country recently. Tell us a little bit just about your career. Like you spent time uh, in Iraq and then you moved on to do embassy work. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about some of the shifts in service that you've had um, and just what that taught you about serving this country generally. Sure. So I had a fantastic military career, frankly. Um, at every point where I was pondering my options, thinking that was time to maybe see if there was something else out there for me. The Army put something else pretty awesome on my plate. Uh, I started out as an infantry officer uh, serving in Korea. It's one of those places, it was before 9-11, before we started our, our global war on terror, where you know you could train full-time. I had a real-world mission uh, defending the border against uh, North Korea. I had company command, ranger school, airborne school, uh, all that kind of stuff that an infantryman does. And then, of course, the, the uh, combat tour in Iraq. And then I uh, had a chance to become a foreign area officer, which is that's something that people don't, you know, has doesn't come across in movies. I I became uh, a diplomat, a uh, foreign service officer for the army, and I picked up another language. I spoke uh, Russian. I picked up Ukrainian and Defense Language Institute. Went to graduate school at Harvard. Uh, went to, uh, lived in Ukraine and traveled throughout the uh, throughout Eurasia. Then went to Moscow for a awesome three-year tour. Uh, it was the big leagues. It was the biggest World Series and all that stuff, uh, working against uh, our, uh, working to, to advance U.S. national security interests versus our most potent adversary. And then Pentagon uh, authoring the key documents that pivoted us away from global war and terror back on great power competition and came to the attention of the White House and joined the White House. And that was a fantastic military career. What can let me, I say? Let me unpack that a little for folks who 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 don't speak the language as much because people might think that there's anything uh, traditional about that progression, but what they need to understand is first of all, so you were, you were an infantry officer in Iraq wounded by an IED. Uh, and so purple heart recipient. And then what I'm curious about is, was that a factor in the decision to go the FAO, the foreign area officer route, or was that an aspiration that you had prior to that tour? So I, I weighed where I could be most helpful, uh, where I could be of most use to the army. And I loved being an infantryman. Um, you know, as, as for those that, uh, are, have any affiliation with the military, 
infantry is where the fun is. You know, that's where you're you're leading troops, you're getting dirty, you're shooting guns, you're doing all, you're blowing stuff up. It's army uh, stuff. You're, you're doing army, it's army stuff. stuff. You're doing army stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, but I thought at, at one point, you know, after coming back from my deployment, where can I have the do the most good? And I uh, settled on on Fayo because I already had Russian language. It also uh, kind of satisfied my aspirations for self improvement and additional education, and um, you know, moving into the strategic sphere, uh, becoming a strategist um, with a regional expertise. And also, I want people to understand, like, they don't just send officers to the Defense Language Institute. That's not a thing that they do all the time. Most of the folks who get sent to uh, to learn a foreign language are enlisted troops who what they're doing is focused on language. So you've got to have really crushed it. And you don't have to, you know, this may embarrass you, you don't have to have to speak to this colonel, but you've got to have really crushed it in every role that you've been in for them to go, yeah, we're going to invest that money and that time in taking this native Russian speaker, right? You left the Soviet Union in 75, or, or you were born in right. 75 and then left? Uh, 79. 79, 79 okay. three, three and a half years old. Okay, so my, my wife was was, uh, was similar, born in 81, left in 89, and probably right. in a very similar way. Spoke, spoke Russian, speaks Russian, doesn't really speak Ukrainian. So they said, we're going to go get him his Ukrainian. So anyway, I just want everybody to understand that this was not just you were a guy who happened to be in this spot at this time. Like you were an officer who was crushing it and was doing an incredibly good job and was on your way up. And I want people to understand that because like you said, your career kept getting better and better and you kept getting opportunities. This stopped your military career. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, um, I was very fortunate and fortunate, not just in a sense of like luck, but uh, timing is is everything, frankly, with regards to assignments. And, and uh, I think I proved myself capable along the way and was given uh, positions of increased responsibility. I mean, besides going to, to Russia for three years, which is a very trusted uh, assignment, um, usually, you know, you get pretty seasoned folks. There was my first thing out the gate. Uh, so I, I proved myself uh, deeper in my background and then authoring the, the kinds of work that I was doing. That's now that those are the documents of record, how we face Russia as an adversary, how we face Russia as a, as a, a um, as a, as a power that's looking to upend the international order and harm uh, us national security interests. Uh, I got a chance to write those things uh, based on my deep experience with Russia, uh, and as well as my service in, in Moscow, and then uh, take that to the national level. I mean, I, was, I pulled up to uh, to the NSC, which is, again, not a typical thing. It's especially you get you got guys that work in the defense directorate on the National Security Council because you need that kind of expertise. But usually you don't have regional experts that, that serve in those capacities. So I, uh, I have no complaints, I guess, about my career up until that point, up until uh, it was derailed. Yeah, yeah. You recently um, became a household name, uh, and I think you know, given the vertigo of the past five years in in political life in America, I think some people might not fully remember that short journey for you, that long short journey. Um, do you mind just reminding us from your perspective? You know, w- you know what got you in front of Congress even in the first place? Sure. So it's um, a, about a year into my uh, tenure in the White House. Uh, I, um, I was responsible for Ukraine as well as Russia, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I was monitoring a developing situation in which U.S. 
domestic politics was creeping into uh, national security. Uh, and um, reporting this over the course of subsequent of preceding months, as watching, you know, Ambassador Yovanovitch, who was the ambassador to Ukraine, uh, being dismissed because of ultimately because of a tweet by Don Jr. Uh, I was watching Rudy Giuliani, the president's um, personal attorney, you know, attempting to orchestrate a investigation into President Trump's chief rival heading into the 2020 elections. And I was watching the U.S. Uh, uh, moving in one direction with regards to establishing a strong partnership with Ukraine to advance U.S. national security interests, and that being upended by the president's own uh, freeze on uh, security assistance and uh, pressure to to get this this investigation going. And I ultimately was on the phone call. I coordinated it and put everything together for it. And I was on this phone call where the president became, uh, it became clear that the president was a driving force behind it. I reported it in proper channels within uh, with with regards to the chain of command inside the White House behind closed doors. And ultimately, when this whole thing unraveled, became public, I was compelled to testify uh, uh, pursuant to a subpoena, um, you know, and I I kind of uh, just reported the facts as I as I knew them and uh, attacked by some, um, I guess, uh, elevated by others. But that's that was uh, that all unfolded in the preceding couple of years. And before before Ravi keeps us going down this path, which is where we should go, I want people to appreciate at that moment, you're a lieutenant colonel who I assume aspired to be a full bird colonel, the next rank, um, who's had this, like all lieutenant colonels do, who have not put in their retirement already, uh, and, you know, has had this great career, is doing work that you enjoy. At several points in the narrative that you just laid out, you had to make a choice where you put your career on the line. Like you, and, and like people need to understand, at no point did you think, whoa, like, like you don't get to know things like, well, then I'll write a book. Like people need yeah. to understand that like it's w- what you were putting on the line was I will be, you know, n- I will not be promotable. I will not get to continue in my career and no one's going to know why. Like that was the calculation you know, that you were making. Jason, you know, you would understand this uh, having served. We we swore an oath to uh, support and defend the Constitution of the United States. In the, that moment uh, that I was reporting it, I saw this nation under threat. I saw a president trying to steal an election. I could, I did not, my first thought was not to, you know, preserving my career, mm-hmm. staying below the radar. Frankly, there is that kind of careerism, even in the honorable institution of the military. But that mm-hmm. was not my thought. My thought was, what, what was my obligation? Uh, what was my obligation to defend this? And I knew in that moment that I, what I was doing by reporting this is that I was, I was defending this country. And mm-hmm. what I was doing by, uh, you know, being compelled to testify and giving truthful testimony that I was defending this country, I did not consider the fact that I, I already knew that I was going to get promoted to, to colonel, frankly, even though the board was a year out because I'd had everything that I needed to get there. I was sure. selected for senior service college, which is a huge, you know, it's only seven and a half percent people. But I did. Those were not my thoughts. I, of course, I recognized the risks that were in place. I, I thought I would potentially lose my position at the White House. But I thought I would still have a home with the army, and it turned out that uh, I became a, a political liability, a bit of a hot potato. And um, you know, uh, I think folks felt it felt it expedient to, to, to set me aside, uh, to, so uh, I wouldn't you know affect their careers or their their aspirations or objectives. 
Yeah, I just wanted to make it clear because one of the things we do here is we we arm people not just with the information that a guest shares, but we want them to be able to tell the story of the credibility of that guest. And when you are discussed, as people discuss the history of this event, I want people to understand that you made the decisions you made based on the oath you took. But I also want people to understand that you did all of those fully knowing the consequences for you, because that's what it means to keep your oath. And uh, and so that said, Ravi, go ahead and we can go to the next part of the story. Just one quick comment on that one. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, the story that I try to tell in, in the book, uh, it just came out on August 3rd, mm-hmm. that it's, it's, the, it's the background that compelled me to take the actions I did. And it's the background, the tools that I assembled to try to navigate what was frankly just an almost unnavigable uh, enterprise where I, I was going up against the president of the United States, the commander in chief, mm-hmm. the high, the apex of my chain of command. And it's really, you know, how I, how all that came together, all, all my preceding experiences. Well, um, before we get into the reaction to your testimony, uh, in the simplest possible terms, uh, given that you know this podcast is about talking to relatives about uh, you know who may have political differences than us, in the simplest possible terms, what was wrong about the president's conduct? Yeah, well, uh, I think we have uh, we as Americans uh, have a keen sense of fair play. We expect uh, things to be fair. We rec- we in politics, we've started to set the bar increasingly uh, lower and lower on what our expectations are for politicians. Um, my consideration was very, very simple. Um, I did not believe that what the president was doing was lawful. I did not believe that it was in the U.S. national security interest. And I just took the simple act of reporting it through the proper chain of command in order to, uh, you know, my, my hope was that more senior officials within the White House would be able to counsel the president to reverse course. And that had happened multiple times. You know, the president had taken one action or tweeted in one way and then had to kind of roll it back. And I I, I thought that's what I was helping do uh, with my initial reports. Of course, uh, you know, I became just a, a small cog in, 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 in a big political machine, uh, you know, as the impeachment unfolded. And my task there was really straightforward also is to provide truthful testimony, provide the facts, leave it to the elected officials that the you know, American public had selected for those positions to come up with the decisions, uh, right or wrong. Well, uh, I imagine that you just got bipartisan consensus that <laughs> pressuring a foreign government to investigate a domestic political rival is wrong, right? That is that what happened? Uh, you you would hope so, but no, uh, it wasn't. <laughs> I think uh, you know people fell to their political camps. You know, it's interesting having watching watching this unfold over the course of months. It was clear to me what was going on. Uh, I think I tried my my effort in uh, providing testimony was to, you know, basically uh, to to help the congressman and ultimately the American public understand what was at stake here. What was at stake was not just simply, uh, uh, you know, funds for a country that Congress had appropriated and were lawfully supposed to be applied to that country. It was not a simple question about, you know, uh, the president uh, seeking a, a kind of a fair investigation, in, a fair investigation into wrongdoing. There are, are set procedures for this. There are ways to transfer documentation at Evans to conduct these investigations. What the president was fundamentally calling for was to have a foreign power who is at war with another country, reliant on aid, fabricate an investigation 
into a political rival to, to help steal an election. So the steal was not, you know, anything to do with like the Democrats that were out of power securing power. It was the president as the incumbent applying all his resources to stay in power. That's what right. I, I considered was in play. And so as you lay that out now for us, I mean, it, it, it obviously is very simple. We remember that that sort of thing, and 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 we saw when you went in front of the when in went in front of Congress that, as you said in in your book, that the Republicans because they saw the truth as the enemy, they came to see you as the enemy. I guess what I'm curious about because the thrust of this podcast is to equip people to discuss these issues with with other regular people in their lives. Yeah. I'm wondering either offline, off television with members of Congress or their staff, or perhaps. In the in the years since, have you had just one-on-one conversations with people where you've had the opportunity to sort of explain these events and why you think they're wrong? And I guess I'm curious, are there tips that you have for having those kind of real conversations and what it is that has broken through if it has? You know what I find uh helpful because I I I've uh charged myself with the same mission to try to you know bring people together uh but i recognized there was a i did something with arnold schwarzenegger in which he was very very focused on unity and what i realized in that conversation is frankly you can't have unity without accountability you have an open wound unless we we treat that wound the wound cannot heal and that's what we have emerging out of the trump uh the trump era there was enormous around of uh, amount of uh, corruption and wrongdoing. I think what 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 I found useful in talking to individuals about this is, especially if they don't know who I am, and I'm the, it's no it's not immediately a polarizing conversation. Is just having a kind of conversation about opening a conversation about like, well, you know, is it fair to try to steal an election? Or is it fair to kind of apply pressure to somebody like you know uh, some some uh, mafia don or something like that, and just talk about the the the, the facts. It's easy to come through. What taints the whole conversation often is the personalities involved, and the you know the 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 the, the fact that now we are in our deeply entrenched in our political camps, and uh, there is no gray area. And things are, are very very black and white. Have other leaders applied pressure to foreign uh, their foreign counterparts in the past? Yes. But they've done it always uh, in mind uh, with the, the uh, goal of advancing U.S. national security interests. That was one of the distinguishing factors here. It was not anything to do with national security interests. It's purely self-serving, purely uh, a, a, um, a political errand to advance a re-election campaign. And that's really what was the, one of the distinguishing features about this one. So you basically do it by analogy is what you're saying. Like You're like, okay, forget who the players are here. Imagine that. I mean, you could. I guess you could take that a step further. You could reverse it. You could say, let's say President Biden does this, and sort of test those biases. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's that's very important. I um, I try to adhere to uh, my you know nonpartisan roots as a military officer. Although, frankly, I can't see how I how, uh, I, I, I'm completely rejected by one side. Uh, but I at least you know try to judge judge things on their merits and if there's something you know that that the uh, left is doing that uh, the, the democrats are doing that's not off limits to me you know i think it would be understandable if the life experience you've had over the last three years in somehow shaped the opinions you come to in the voting booth i think that's okay i, yeah. I appreciate that yeah <laughs> yeah and you know jason and i often talk about how the coalition 
that we talk about is not Democrat versus Republican anymore. It's almost Patriots versus, you know, whatever we want to call it on the, you know, on this other side. And and this coalition now includes people who consider themselves left and democratic, but also independents, centrists, eclectic people. Uh, the behavior is so outside of the norm. And, and your story is, is such a visceral example of it that it almost transcends ideology at this point, like good faith ideology differences, you know? Um, and it's hard to talk about because people want to peg you as a partisan, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, it's, it, I, I have this uh, American flag pin I wore on all my, during my media carpet bombing in the beginning of August. Uh, and I did it intentionally because this, this symbol over here is being usurped by, uh, not by, by patriots, but, you know, uh, ethnocentric nationalists and i think this is the symbol needs to be reclaimed by by regular americans you know uh that that recognize that it's not it's not something symbolic of one particular party it's something that, that uh, we all own as americans well and what's what's so i mean just as a tangent what's so upsetting to me about that is that you would even feel compelled to do that when you are somebody who everybody understands wore the flag on your right shoulder while deployed on behalf of your country, right? That, that, that we, that we even then have to put it on our lapel in order to, you know, is like, I mean, I understand why, and I understand the point you're making, but to me, it's like, it shouldn't even be a question. Lately, True has been learning some Russian. You know, Diana is Russian. My in-laws are Russian. And I got to tell you, an eight-year-old learning Russian completely and totally adorable. And he's going to end up with uh, a great foundation so that when he gets a little older and he wants to maybe travel, then we're going to expose him to Babbel because it's the perfect way to learn a language. I mean, it, it's the number one selling language learning app for a reason. Through Babbel's bite-sized lessons, you'll learn new language skills that you can actually use in the real world, from greetings, menus, and directions to gaining a deeper understanding of the culture. Babbel is a travel essential. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com code MAJORITY54. Babbel, language for life. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, as is every morning of my life, as, as you well know if you listen to this podcast a lot. Athletic Greens is the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. AG1 by Athletic Greens, the category-leading superfood product, brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach, and it's hard to keep up with. And to help each of us be at our best, they simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. I mean, you've heard me say on the show before, and it's true, that I got rid of my multivitamin because I started drinking Athletic Greens in the morning. One tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com majority today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com majority to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Now, I want to go back to something else you said a minute ago. You said uh, that, you know, the key here is the only path to unity is through accountability, which begs the question. I'm just curious. I know a lot of our listeners and myself, Ravi, 
there's a a certain frustration as the as the Trump administration ended, and even even after it ended, when we saw the post you know post administration impeachment for the January sixth insurrection, I think I know that there are a lot of people who wanted naturally. They wanted the ending to the mafia movie. They wanted to see the scene where the bad guys get rolled up, right? Everybody wanted to see that. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to project onto you, but but when you think about that and you think about what you said in your testimony, you know, here right matters and and that that was the conversation you had had with your with your immigrant father, I I'm curious how you've worked through those feelings when when ultimately so far the bad guys didn't lose. And how do you come to grips with that? Because for you, it's got, it's especially raw. Yeah. And I know for our listeners, it's, it's pretty raw too. Yeah. Well, I I'll tell you that I, this is another thing I, I uh, put on myself is that I now have a public voice, whether I want it or not, I, I, I have one and I'm going to use that to do things that I think uh, that are important, uh, you know, to, to, to shine a light on, on the fact that we now have a political system that's sufficiently broken where we could we could envision a world in which we're no longer a democracy uh, th- that's something that we couldn't have ex- uh, in any way have, have expected in the past and part of my charge is to ensure when people fall short that I call them on it uh, don't let it pass i mean we should not let the 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 floor the expectations for our politicians continue to drop. We should have high expectations. And if people fail to meet those high expectations, we hold them accountable. We vote them out. Well, and I think further for those who are wondering what to do with these emotions, what you're saying is, well, it doesn't really matter how it ended. I refuse to accept that it's over. So as a result, what you're really saying, I mean, in our former career, it's Charlie Mike, it's continue mission. What you're saying is I may not be in the uniform anymore, but I I can still (coughs) fight for the democracy. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. I'm committed to advancing U.S. national security interests, holding uh, uh, politicians that fail to live up to their values accountable, and frankly, advocating for public service because it was uh, it was such a, a enormous uh, you know honor for me to serve and, and a benefit for, for, for me. I, I got out of a lot of out of the pub, uh, a lot out of my public service. That's what I'm doing. In addition to frankly, you know, also working on a doctorate in, at Johns Hopkins and. Uh, you know, in a think tank space and working at a, on an NGO that uh, called the Renew Democracy Initiative to try to figure out ways to harden our democracy. So it makes my heart smile to hear you guys figure out, uh, thinking about ways to bring people together. That's what I'm doing with my, my uh, you know, n- next chapter of uh, my life. To continue along a little bit what Jason was talking about, you uh, are a highly decorated soldier and you'd think that you'd be somebody who'd be safe from attacks from the right, uh, you know, the people who, you know, as you've talked about, um, have captured some of these symbols of patriotism. Uh, what was it like just receiving uh, such, you know, scathing criticism from, you know, a huge segment of society? Like, how'd you get through that? I'll tell you, I have uh, a bounty of perspective. <laughs> and that bounty of perspective it, it dismisses you know, a lot of the stuff on, on social media, the kind of the, the inane attacks from folks, um, you know, I certainly don't discount like the the Tucker Carlson's, the uh, Laura Ingram's and so forth that frankly basically destroyed my career in a way because they made me uh, uh, toxic. 
but um, so those are harder to discount. Uh, I, might, I might hold a grudge against those folks, but the, r- the rest of the kind of the inane stuff on social media doesn't matter. Uh, to, to me, what matters is my, my uh, family, my support structure, the tens of thousands of Americans that have reached out, you know, in social media, thousands by mail. Uh, those are the things that matter. And, you know, having served in combat, frankly, having lost a, a daughter, um, you know, our, our first daughter, it puts things in perspective about what really matters. And it's not, it is not like, you know, some nasty tweets or something of that nature or some, uh, some, some incredulous attacks by somebody that frankly is a, I, I wear as a badge of honor when some knucklehead says something about me, um, you know, cause I, I have no regard for him. Uh, but that's just perspective, I think. Well, that's, I used to say the exact same thing. And I, and I believe that, that, that it grants that kind of perspective, but there's another side to that, right? The other side to that is, is that speaking from experience, when you have served in combat and you know what it is to have, you know, to face the greatest possible threat. There is sometimes in my experience, there's work to be done to discern between any threat and the greatest possible threat. Right. Like, and I think, you know what I mean, that, that you do have to do extra work to say, this is just social media because look, yeah, it's just social media, but like, like we hear from some of the same people, there's death threats in there there, you know, so I guess I'm just saying like, we appreciate your continuing service and it, and and while you have to put it in perspective, we don't, and it is a big deal. I'll just mention that there's been an enormous amount of upheaval. I mean, it's been, it's been uh, uh, difficult for a family life, uh, but um, that perspective is what, you know, keeps me, keeps me moving forward rather than saying that there are no costs. And frankly, in a lot of ways, this is the, the general cross that, uh, whistleblowers have to bear anyway. I just have to, uh, have done it on a national stage. Yeah. Um, you know, th- when I was thinking about this conversation today, and part of the reason I asked so many questions about your career and, and, and the end of your career at the beginning was I, you know, in under very different circumstances, um, I left the military earlier than I anticipated. I finished my initial commitment, but I thought, uh, actually to me, Lieutenant Colonel was my career goal. And, um, and I left as a captain just cause you know, like a lot of, like a lot of company grade officers, I just got to the point where I was like, okay, I don't really feel that I'm as needed here anymore. And, and, and I yep. stepped to the side and I've been writing about this recently. And so it's had me thinking about it. And I'm just kind of curious what your emotional, you know, what, what was that emotional journey like for you the day you became a veteran and, and, you know, after the, after your last day of being a soldier, taking the uniform off for the last time, that's, Coming to grips yeah. with that identity is an experience. It is. Uh, my wife says I probably haven't fully dealt with it. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think you'll agree that uh, not being subject to the the, the uh, rigidity of the military is is a huge load off. Uh, oh, I shave once a week, so yeah. right on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably something that I'm still kind of working through. I haven't settled on my next career. Uh, I'm do. I have my finger in like a bunch of different. Uh, uh, pies or something like that. I don't know if that's, that's not even a good metaphor, but I'll claim that one too. Like here, it matters, <laughs> but, um, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, but it's, it's been a pretty good and interesting experience meeting lots of fascinating people, having a chance to share my experiences, you know, I'll take the, that's the good, uh, along with the bad. We want to thank you for joining us. And I'm sure folks out there awesome. are, are really proud of everything that you've done and, and keep fighting the good fight. Well, who are Colonel and, uh, thanks for your service. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to that conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, as usual, you can leave us a voicemail and let us know what you'd like us to address. The number is 508-687-2589. That's 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And the show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kimmet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.